We all have blind spots. No matter how wise or well-intentioned we may be, all of us have places in our lives where we need to be challenged and called out. It may be some hypocrisy we've let slip into our lives, or a little compromise that's grown to a big one, or completely neglecting something that God says is really important. Calling out God's people on their blind spots was the job of the biblical prophets. And it wasn't always on the same thing. Often prophets criticized the Israelites' treatment of the poor, or greed, or lack of compassion. But other times it had to do with their worship of idols, or refusing to take Sabbath once a week. What made the prophet's job so tough is that almost always they had to swim upstream against their culture. Imagine if you preached a sermon condemning slavery. In the mid-1800s, that would have been a prophetic sermon, especially in the American South. But if you gave that sermon today, most of your listeners would just pat you on the back for affirming something they already believe. The true prophet challenges the blind spots of their own day, not those of the past. So that means that they are usually up against the strongest trends and values of their own time. And that is not easy work. It means being criticized. It means often being very unwelcome. To persevere in it requires uncommon strength. It also requires a great deal of wisdom to see some of the blind spots of our own era and culture and to call those things out and point in a new direction, even when that's anything but popular. Our guest on this episode is someone who has done this kind of work faithfully for more than five decades. Dr. Ron Sider is a writer, speaker, professor, husband and father through both birth and adoption, and the author of more than 30 books, including one that Christianity Today lists among the most important of the 20th century, titled Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Today we get to listen in on some of Dr. Sider's reflections about what has been important in his perseverance over more than a half century now, as a powerful voice challenging God's people, sometimes in very unwelcome ways, to live out their faith in work of justice and mercy. to Justice and the Inner Life, presented by the Christian Alliance for Orphans. We'll explore what it takes to sustain a heart of justice and mercy over a lifetime. Here's your host, Jed Medefit. Let's plunge in here, Ron, with just, you know, I, I have so appreciated your faithfulness over many, many decades. You know, there's there's a certain hipness to justice now, but you have been this been at this um, long before it was cool. You have been a prophetic voice challenging where the church needed to be challenged. But I think one thing that, that really strikes me is that um, back in even the, the 70s, when you were sounding a strong call to justice, you were not only speaking about kind of external things, the, the external work of justice, but also the, the significance of the internal moorings that enable us to engage work of justice and mercy for the long term. And I, I just wanted to dig into that a little bit. Why is it that you always held the two together, that external commitment to justice, the internal commitment to spiritual realities? Why do you see that as so important? I, I felt, you know, from the beginning that if I had anything to do with it, um, uh, as I hoped evangelicals would become much more concerned with questions of peace and justice, uh, uh, that we wouldn't repeat the mistakes of the old social gospel movement uh, a century ago, where we had this uh, 
vigorous movement in the church to uh, work at questions of um, public justice. They did a number of quite significant things, but uh, it was grounded in an inadequate um, theology. Uh, at some important points, it was uh, liberal theologically, uh, and they basically lost any real concern for evangelism. And um, uh, I said, uh, Lord, if I can have anything to do with a developing evangelical movement, please help me uh, make sure that we don't repeat that kind of one-sided mistake, that we maintain a biblical balance. So uh, the word biblical balance, I think, has been a passion for me um, from um, the very beginnings of my sense of call in this area. Uh, I think uh, I always thought that meant uh, prayer and action, and it meant evangelism and social ministry. It meant the inward life of the congregation, and it meant outward mission in the world. That is really good, Ron, and, and so important. I think it is really easy for all of us to see those things you've just mentioned as, as having little to do with each other, totally disconnected. So prayer and action, or evangelism and social ministry, or inward life, of the congregation, and then our outward mission. And we think of those things as separate, having little to do with each other, maybe even competing. And yet what you're saying is not only should they come together, but really they have to come together. We cannot sustain either without both together. Uh, So very important. Um, Ron, I imagine that over the years you have known many people who started with a lot of enthusiasm for justice, for mercy, um, but over the years facing the really hard things that inevitably come as part of this journey, they burned out, they dropped out, they, they began well but could not sustain through the difficult parts of the journey. Are there any things that you particularly notice um, as common threads in those stories of, of those who were unable to sustain for the long journey? It's certainly the case that over the years I have uh, uh, known evangelical Christians uh, who develop a passion for justice. Uh, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, they get really very frustrated, angry at um, the failure of the evangelical world. And I get that. Uh, you know, I understand why uh, that happens. Uh, sometimes uh, that has led to um, abandonment of an evangelical theological foundation, um, or I guess uh, sometimes even uh, uh, um, the Christian faith at all. That always makes me feel very bad because I think that uh, it's a fully biblical framework that's precisely the foundation we need for the most vigorous uh, challenge to what's wrong and unfair and unjust uh, in society. So, um, um, a solid biblical foundation is crucial. Uh, I think um, a um, ongoing prayer life. Uh, you know, in my own uh, in my own life, I uh, I was clear from very young that um, personal devotions was important and regular prayer was um, something that one should do. And you know, I tried to do that, but uh, as I got very busy and into social action and organizing, I. I found um, that often that period slipped from my schedule. And uh, one thing that happened was that uh, about uh, uh, at midlife, at 40 is, uh, is midlife, maybe it's not quite midlife anymore, but anyway, about that time, uh, um, my wife and I have now been married for 55 plus years. Uh, thank the good Lord. Uh, Congratulations. Had, uh, 
it's a serious, uh, you know, uh, a time of pain and struggle. We hurt each other. No, we didn't commit adultery, but, you know, we, we hurt each other. And uh, we needed to uh, have some very important uh, counseling from uh, a good Christian uh, family therapist. The really funny part was that I was... Uh, I had been asked to give the peace lectures at a very important gathering of uh, Mennonites and Brethren and Quakers, uh, kind of historic peace churches, getting together to reaffirm that tradition. And uh, I was preparing these lectures right in the middle of this worst uh, painful conflict in my marriage. And more than once we had a a nasty weekend fight and uh, I came to my desk on Monday morning and said, Lord, I know this is, this is awful, but, uh, uh, I've really got to work on this peace lecture today, and uh, please forgive me for my quarrel with my wife and help me to write about peace. <laughs> and in that time of pain and struggle, you know, I really needed the Lord's help uh, every morning, and I, I prayed fervently, Lord, help me through this day and uh, and all of that. And it made the, the time of prayer um, more, I don't know if natural is the right word, but I wanted, uh, I needed that time of prayer. And I think... Um, Ever since um, that experience, uh, I've been more faithful. I wouldn't claim to be um, uh, ideal in any way there, but uh, a lot more faithful in terms of regular prayer. That is a great story, Ron, and it's, it, it, uh, it just illustrates so vividly how all of us, every single one of us, can get caught up in these great, grand, kind of universal themes, universal causes, justice, mercy, peace, um, and speak about them eloquently, you know, from the stage, write about them. But the, the kind of the acid test of our commitment to those things is how we're treating the people nearest to us. And, and, uh, that, that without kind of the, the inner commitment to Christ and to, to the things that develop a heart and a spirit of peace and of justice, we're going to be uh, we're going to become split people, split personalities, pu- publicly saying one thing, and then in our in our most intimate moments, perhaps living a very different way. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's very true. I I always said theoretically uh, uh, to myself and my family that my first commitment was to Christ, and my second commitment was to my family, and my third commitment was to my ministry. Uh, I think I believe that. Uh, I told the uh, family, the children, uh, we had uh, two homemade boys and adopted daughter, and uh, I told them that, um, you know, it doesn't matter where I am in the world, if you really need me, call me and uh, I'll be on the next plane. Now, they never really tested that when I was in Africa or Asia, uh, but uh, I, I meant it, and uh, I think that's the right priority, that our that our ministry comes after our commitment to Christ, and then secondly, to our family. I remember a story that I heard uh, firsthand from a couple from New York, and uh, they had not been Christians, and they both became Christians, and and, uh, they had been fighting before they became Christians, and uh, their marriage was falling apart. In fact, they said the only reason we stayed together was in order to destroy each other. And then she became a Christian, and uh, she told him, and he said, oh, really? But he watched her, and after a few weeks, uh, he said, I'd like to do that too. But then the marriage didn't work. And finally, one day, he said, you know, uh, we love Jesus, but it's not working. You go your way, and I'll go mine. And his wife said, if God can reconcile us to himself, but can't reconcile us to each other, the whole thing's a fraud. Now, that's not 
a final comment on every marriage, but it's a profound theological statement about salvation, which is not just about acceptance with God uh, and uh, forgiveness of sins, but it's also about uh, the Holy Spirit transforming our relationship uh, with, first of all, a spouse if we're married, and then children and family uh, and neighbors and so on. Well, that's been the heart of your message, I think, all through the years, is that that there is this uh, spiritual reality of our reconciliation with God, and then he sends us forth to be agents of reconciliation on earth with, with helping others reconcile with their creator and then with each other, and absolutely. Yeah. You look in the Bible and you look at Christian history, and it's just obvious again and again and again that people would like to have a right relationship with God and have it not interfere with our relationship with our neighbor. So the prophets uh, uh, say... Um, God speaking through Amos, I hate, I despise your feasts. You know, these are the religious activities God told them to have, but they were oppressing their neighbor, and they wanted to be able to worship God and still oppress the neighbor. And all through the Bible, God says, doesn't work that way. You know, uh, a right relationship with me means you're supposed to treat your neighbor rightly, too. So a, a moment ago, you alluded to how sometimes we can become angry uh, when we're we're people who are passionate about justice, and, and perhaps sometimes there's a place for that, right? A, a certain righteous indignation at the brokenness, at the hurt. Uh, but um, when we become angry people, and that's continually on our face and spilling out in, in our relationships, that's obviously a problem. How do you feel like a person like you, I mean, I sense, Ron, and just in our interactions over the years, that despite the heavy things you've dealt with, you've kept a pretty light heart. How... How do we do that? How, how have friends you've seen who have kept light hearts amidst the weighty, often crushing weight of justice work and justice ministry and, and sometimes seeing others not respond in the way we'd wish the church not wake in the way we want it to? How do you avoid becoming angry? How do you nurture a light heart amidst that heaviness? Yeah, another great question. <laughs> and I don't have five uh great points to respond. One thing that immediately came to mind was was just thinking about John Perkins, uh, who has had a strong message to white Christians for decades, but he does it with a smile and he does it with love and uh, a warm embrace. Um, he, he really cares about people that he's talking to. Um, I, I think probably several things. Um, for starters, just that, you know, Jesus uh, told us that love is the, the center of everything. And, you know, if you're really mad at somebody, uh, you're not really uh, loving them. You can be angry, truly angry at evil actions and unjust structures, but uh, persons are, are loved by God and, uh, you know, we're, we're called um, uh, to love them. I think a second thing is that you know, one really must have um, a genuine humility when you, even when we're just doing your best to exegete, exegete the Bible, you know, um, Christians over the centuries have not always understood it in the same way. Uh, and one can look back and see how St. Augustine, probably the greatest Christian theologian, made um, serious mistakes, pretty awful ones in some cases. Um, and so I assume I'm making uh, at least as many uh, big mistakes. And so I need to have a, a certain uh, uh, humility about my, even about my my biblical statements that God's on the side of the poor and, and so on. And then when you move from there to applying those biblical principles to concrete 
political economic situations in our world, you're moving to another whole big level of uh, complexity uh, where, you know, good economists, uh, even good Christian economists disagree on economic analysis of things. Uh, and I don't think that um, the conclusion from that is that one just throws up one's hands and says, um, well, I can't come to any conclusions at all. I think you do your biblical homework. I think you do your careful analysis of society, and then you come to conclusions about whether the earned income tax credit or whatever, you know, is, is a good way to empower poor people. Um, but one always needs to be ready to say, I could be wrong. Uh, and when there are critics who say you've missed this or this or this, either in your biblical analysis or you're in your socioeconomic analysis, then uh, I always said, well, I want to listen to that. Uh, I want to uh, um, try to keep growing and learning because I'm painfully aware that I'm finite. I have a particular history and uh, I certainly haven't read everything in the world that's relevant to any given issue. So uh, uh, humility, uh, which means that you're open to listening uh, to people who really disagree. You, Ron, were talking about these themes, you know, long before it was cool to talk about justice. And of course, the, the church never completely lost it, but, but you were a prophetic voice in the, in the 60s and 70s, really challenging the church to, to re, recapture that, that intertwinedness of, of the internal transformation that God wants to bring and the external implications of our faith in, in work of justice and mercy. What what do you feel are the the dangers today? I mean, you were a, a prophetic voice then. It is the same prophetic message needed today as was needed in the seventies, or do you feel like there's there's a something slightly different that needs to challenge the church today? Yeah, well, I mean, some really major progress I think has been made uh, in the evangelical world. There's a lot more conversation about God being concerned with the poor, being concerned with justice for the poor. Then uh, when I first wrote Rich Christians, it came out in 1977. Um, there's also been huge change in terms of the issue of whether or not we're supposed to primarily be doing evangelism and maybe doing a little social ministry if we've got a little time and money left over. Uh, that used to be the, the dominant view uh, in the evangelical world 40 years ago. And if you were at Lausanne 3 in Cape Town in 2010, uh, there was... I don't think a single speaker on the platform who said anything like that. Uh, it was just common ground that we're supposed to do evangelism and social ministry. And on the ground, uh, you know, there are now 800 or more ministries in John Perkins Christian Community Development Association, some 50, 100 million dollar a year kinds of programs, some much smaller, but they're combining evangelism and social action on the ground among poor people and all around the world, Pentecostals and um, all kinds of evangelicals are, are doing more and more and more. So there's been major change in the evangelical world. Uh, I actually have more recently um, begun to worry a little bit about younger evangelicals uh, um, precisely as they've um, wholeheartedly embraced racial justice and economic justice and creation care and so on. And of course I'm delighted with that. Um, but I've worried a little bit, um, are they affirming and, and doing evangelism as much as they should? I did a piece for Relevant Magazine, I guess, five, six years ago, kind of an open letter to younger Christians, and basically said, please don't forget evangelism. Um, please uh, keep that as 
one central part of what you're about. Um, I guess um, I also worry a little bit about, uh, I mean, we've learned a good bit from the post-modernity. Um, we certainly as evangelicals have been too um, dogmatic in, in our statements and have not been humble enough and say, you know, great Christians from the past got it wrong. We probably are getting it wrong in some places. Um, so, and that's an important learning. Um, only God knows the full truth. Uh, I'm doing my best to be biblical, but I'm sure my biblical understanding is considerably less than what God sees. That's to put it very mildly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that makes me think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, where he describes all of our seeing, all of our knowing and knowledge as being incomplete, as partial, as being almost like a child. And, you know, it's incredible. Here's Paul who who wrote more than half of the New Testament, and yet, and yet he is uh, describing his own vision, his own knowledge as being dim, like in a, a poor reflection is in a mirror. So that, that's a profound truth. Um, but Ron, how, how do you wrestle with that when, when you need to give a challenging word to the church, when you need to say something that's unpopular and swimming upstream? Um, how do you hold on to both that, that boldness, that clarity, and yet still that kind of humility? So uh, we should be willing to be humble about our theological affirmations, uh, but we shouldn't be intimidated, uh, and the conclusion is not that there is no truth, um, that all is relative. Uh, the Bible's true. Uh, God knows what the Bible says. God uh, knows what the truth is, and we should be trying more and more to get closer and closer to what the Bible tells us, um, uh, and we do that by careful study of the Scripture. We do that by listening to the body of Christ historically and um, across um, the um, the globe, uh, and the more and more we can listen to that uh, uh, whole body and be more faithful to the scriptures, we'll get closer. So I don't want us to abandon um, a commitment to biblical truth uh, as our final authority. I think that's uh, absolutely crucial. I think that um, there are temptations for that in a variety of ways uh, uh, in um, millennial evangelicals, perhaps especially. And so my my prayer for uh, younger Christians is, um, yes, of course, you have to think everything through again. Every generation does. Uh, but um, but please make sure, make sure you have biblical balance, biblical balance, biblical balance. Ron, what would you add to that? Is, imagine you are speaking to a young person who's coming out of college or just starting out, and they, they have a passion for justice, and um, and you're thinking – uh, you just want to encourage them in certain habits or practices or rootedness that will enable them to, you know, not just go out there for a year or two and then burn out, but be at it for 10 years, 30 years, 50 years like you have. What what particular things would you point to in that? Well, I think your own personal life, your own, um, um, you know, prayer life, devotional life is crucial. I think involvement in Christian community is crucial. You know, one really can't follow Jesus, whether it's in the area of sexuality or in the area of money, uh, if you're just a lone ranger. The uh, the power of surrounding society, uh, advertising and um, popular culture in all kinds of ways, it's just too strong. So you need Christian community, strong Christian community um, um, for um, uh, people who are leaders. I think you don't necessarily manage to find that. 
uh, in a local congregation, but you can create it. Uh, you can find a circle of, of friends that uh, really know you well and won't give you, uh, you know, will will not take any crap. <laughs> will will uh, you know say, listen, Ron, that's not right, uh, or uh, I'm worried about you here. So um, strong Christian community, I think, uh, is also important. For 25 years or so now, my wife and I have been part of a circle of five couples. We started out praying for our kids, but it was also to mutual accountability. So, you know, it doesn't happen every time, but if there's a real struggle, it's a place where we can go and get counsel from people who are, you know, real peers and don't have any hesitation to say, I don't think so, Ron. <laughs> Well, when you boil it all down, Ron, what at its essence has kept you at this all these years, this more than a half century and such profound influence on the church? I know Rich Christians has been listed as one of the most influential books of the last half century in, in, in evangelical Christianity, but, but you have kept at it. What, what's, what's at the heart of that? My answer is the resurrection. Um, I actually started out um, as an historian, uh, my whole training, even my PhD is in history, uh, and I struggled in college uh, wondering whether or not really an honest intellectual in the modern world could believe in the story of Christianity. Um, and I came to see how strong the evidence for the resurrection is, uh, and uh, that has been sort of an anchor of my faith. And what that means is that uh, I mean, St. Paul says that uh, when Christ returns, this groaning creation is going to be freed of its bondage and decay. Uh, there's going to be bodily resurrection. This wonderful creation that God has made, that we've so messed up with our sin, is going to be restored. And that means that uh, I, I'd certainly like to win uh, campaigns for social justice, for racial justice, and so on. And sometimes I've been part of uh, campaigns that have really made a difference, and I'm grateful for that. But sometimes we've lost. Uh, and when you lose, uh, you don't despair because you know that the resurrection tells you where history is going. Uh, it assures you that uh, in the end, uh, uh, the risen Lord is the Lord of history and he's going to return and he's going to complete his victory over sin and justice, evil and even death itself. Uh, and so even if I fail completely, um, uh, you know, he's still in charge. Uh, and uh, I can uh, trust in that. Um, I um, I did my doctoral dissertation under Dr. Jaroslav Pelikan, who is probably one of the most, uh, I would say, the, the most uh, influential um, church historian um, in the last uh, 50 years or more. And um, a deep, committed Christian, taught at Yale for many, many years. Uh, when he died, the Yale History Department uh, bulletin came out with a whole one-page uh, back page uh, about all of his many accomplishments. And he received every honor that any scholar could receive. He was just absolutely brilliant uh, uh, scholar. But at the very end of the article, and remember, this is Yale History Department, a very secular place. The very last paragraph said, uh, as Dr. Pelican was dying of cancer, he came up with the last of his many aphorisms, quote, if Jesus is not risen, nothing else matters. If Jesus is risen, nothing else matters. And I think he meant that if Jesus is not risen, then we, as Bertrand Russell said, if we die, we rot, uh, no big deal. That's it. Uh, if Jesus is risen, then 
you know, all of my accomplishments are really pretty unimportant. Uh, what really matters is life eternal with the risen Lord. Great final word there, Ron. Amen to that. Well, thanks so much for being with us. And most of all, just thanks for your faithful example over so many years. What a gift to hear these reflections from Dr. Sider now near the end of his race, who has lived well, persevered in love and grace for so many years. I was struck by the example Dr. Sider gave of the time that he realized he was out there championing peace and reconciliation among nations, but had been doing things at home that wounded his wife and left a serious lack of peace in his marriage. That's a danger for any of us. For the Christian, the true test of our commitment to justice and mercy isn't the things we advocate for or ask government to do or big programs that we run. It's in how we love the people nearest us. And if we hope to do that well, over a lifetime, it must be rooted in a heart that is near to God and fed daily by Him. Our character flows from those deep-down places. And I think Dr. Sider gave us some very important clues to what choices have helped grow that kind of character in Him and have kept Him perseverant over such a long journey. The commitment to prayer, to Scripture, to community, and remaining rooted in the church even when the church can be so frustrating at times. I think all of this also helps explain the very rare blend of conviction and humility that I've consistently seen in Dr. Sider. On the one hand, he has been very bold in challenging the values and assumptions of fellow Christians, yet he consistently does that with gentleness and humility, always acknowledging that only God has the complete view of things. I know he'd tell you that he hasn't always done these things perfectly, but it seems clear to me that Dr. Sider has grown steadily more like Jesus over a lifetime of faithful, prophetic leadership. So how about you? Are there any things that you're out there championing as a cause, but failing to live with those nearest you? We all can fall into that. It's something important to ponder and to pray over in times alone with God. It's also something that reminds us we all need friends who will be like a prophet to us, calling us out on our blind spots so that we can grow together to be more like Jesus each day. You've been listening to Justice and the Inner Life with Jed Medefint, a production of the Christian Alliance for Orphans. To learn more about the Alliance, visit kfo.org.